think at home. So I'm glad now we have a mic. We're here. Good morning. Welcome. We're happy to see you guys today. And for those of you guys who are at home, I have no idea what to tell you, but we're now back live and you can hear my voice. My name's Ilya Morakovich, and I am humbled to be standing up here today. Jerry asked me to preach a couple weeks ago, and then he confirmed two days ago if I still wanted to. And the answer was, But here we are, and I wanted to tell you guys a little bit about um, holidays, because we just had Christmas, and I finally uh, got to see my brother after a year, because I don't know if you guys are aware, uh, there's a pandemic going on. And so my brother finally got to visit. We did all the preparations, we had all the tests, and then he came on out, and we got to spend Christmas together. And, and it was a remarkable time, uh, not only because him and I got to spend a lot of positive time together, but we got to have really great arguments too. You don't see each other for a year, that stuff sort of builds up. So we got to argue and <laughs> be at each other's throats a little bit, uh, and then find peace and resolution, and everything turned out absolutely fantastic. But my memories of Christmas are often... Um, colored by this uh, memory of me and my brother where uh, on every Christmas morning about 4.30 a.m., me being the younger brother, it was my responsibility and duty to suddenly kick down his door uh, and jump onto his back while he was sleeping, knees first, and then start shaking him, it's Christmas, it's Christmas, get up, get up, come on, come on. But I couldn't, I wasn't allowed to do that into my parents' room because I had done that previously and now there was a ban on me doing that. But then I would essentially wake my brother up and him and I would sit at the top of the stairwell and uh, we would sit there just waiting. And he would be like, Elia, why did you get me up? And I'd go, Alex, come on, it's Christmas. And we'd be sitting there in anticipation for what was actually four hours. <laughs> and so my parents finally heard my brother complaining loud enough that they got out of bed uh, and invited us down into the celebration that was Christmas morning. And for many, many years, the, the, the excitement that was attached to Christmas, uh, as many of you know, is next level. I mean, if, if you've seen a child, <laughs> you're aware that Christmas comes with a lot of excitement and a lot of um, wonder. Well, what's interesting is I don't know what happened over the years. Maybe it was uh, the way that we did Christmas. Maybe it was me starting to think I was too cool. But Christmas got a little less exciting. And my Anglican tradition, uh, and in my Anglican tradition, Easter began to take uh, top billing in terms of excitement. Our Sunday services uh, sometimes push three and a half hours on Easter Sundays, and we would also have a two-hour service Saturday night, and then oh, also on Friday we had an hour and a half to two-hour service, and of course there was one at Thursday, so then you were also there for an hour and a half, two hours. I mean, this was a marathon of church in the tradition I grew up in, and it would culminate on Saturday evening around midnight because we were those people. And, you know, we, we had a giant uh, altar. Yes, we called it an altar. And we had banners, and they were all in the colors, uh, the black colors, the morning grieving colors. And come midnight, our church of a couple hundred people uh, would wait in anticipation until the clock struck 12. And then we would, the, the, I mean, the stage would transform. It went from grieving to celebrating, and all of these people would start ringing bells because we were told to bring bells. And my dad, being my dad, somehow came across giant uh, 
um, I don't even know what the word for them is, but essentially the things from doorbells where you tap them really lightly and it makes a very wonderful sound. Well, he would do, bring three of those on a string with wooden blocks and you just start bashing these things. And again, as a kid, this is phenomenal. I mean, you get a free pass to do any amount of noise that you want. And there's hooping and hollering and at like 12, 12 a.m., 45 seconds, you have now this string of 25 to 30 people dancing through the aisles. I mean, Easter turned into this big, big thing. And then once again, something started to creep in. I went off to college, and I sort of was like, well, I understand Easter. And the excitement sort of mellowed. And I love Easter. I still love it. But there was a mellowing of the excitement that comes along with it. I'm sure many of you guys are not awake at 4.30 a.m. on Christmas morning, jumping on top of people in your home trying to get them ready for Christmas. And maybe some of you are still. Keep it up. Don't stop. And, but some of you have this sort of, okay, no, I understand what's coming. I have an anticipation. I know what's happening. And it sort of takes something away from that experience. Well, there's this wonderful film that I'd like us to remember. If you haven't seen it, I strongly recommend it. If you have seen it, you'll find great joy in this. And that film uh, is Elf. Come on. (laughs) I mean, even if you haven't seen it, that's a phenomenal picture. That just brings a lot of joy. You see, this film uh, is the story of of an elf who who realizes that being four and a half feet taller than all the other elves, he might not in fact be an elf. Uh, he travels to New York to find his father. And on this journey, there's uh, spaghetti, uh, there's snowball fights, there are, I believe there's a fist fight uh, with someone. And this whole journey is covered in laughter. I mean, he's excited about the gum he gets to find on the subway. This man uh, walks into a coffee shop that says, world's best cup of coffee, and screams, you did it! Congratulations! And this elf, (laughs) Buddy, just brings with him everywhere he goes this unending joy, and nothing seems to get him down. It doesn't matter. He's going to make everything better. And so this film culminates again into uh, he meets his father. There's a lot of tension because his father is a very well-together, put-to-do businessman type, of course. And he's a little stuffy, and he's just really concerned about these meetings, and he's got a business thing going on. And, you know, of course, it's business, business, business. And Elf uh, Buddy here is going Christmas, Christmas, Christmas. And, of course, we have this inevitable tension. And we find ourselves standing in Central Park where there's a moment where Buddy is trying to draw the Christmas spirit out of the people around him, and they are singing. And the father has this choice in this moment, do I sing or do I not sing? And that choice is one, and this tension that I, I, I watched this film, and I thought to myself, oh, that was me. <laughs> Because there are many times now, now we have the luxury of being able to have no choice about singing. For some of us, that's a great curse. For some of us, that is a great blessing. Because now we don't even have to sit there not singing while everyone else does. Because there's something about singing that when you step into this joyous chorus, there's a certain surrender. There's a certain, I'm going to be excited. Uh, I heard a sermon once where the pastor said, raise your arms during worship. 
That's not what I'm telling you. You're fine. But this person felt that this is vitally important to raise your arms because there's a certain humility that comes along with this. There's a certain excitement that just comes along with this, you know, when uh, the Colts do well <laughs> and your arms go up in excitement. There's a certain celebratory nature to this behavior. Well, his father was standing there unsure of whether or not he was going to sing or not sing to participate himself in this Christmas spirit. And that actually brings us to our scripture, which I'd like to read for you this morning because you have no idea what we're going to be talking about at all. And I'd like to share that with you. This comes out of the book of Hebrews chapter 5. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. You see, in this book of Hebrews, we see this distinction made between milk and solid food. We see those who are mature and those who are not. And I don't know if you've heard this message, because this is the message I was frequently told, is professional is, is put together. Mature, in fact, means muted. Because it is, it is silly to throw your arms up and get excited about what's happening around you. It is silly to get to be drawn into the, 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 the wonder and curiosity of the world around you. I don't know, maybe some of you are in this room who are like me where uh, maybe you see an illusionist. If you've ever gone to see an illusionist or a magician and they perform some sort of trick or some feat. And some of you are going, wow, that's amazing. And the rest of us are going, I know how he did it. That's not impressive. Come on. He had the card there. You know, I don't know. We, we, we see things and we want to take away some of that wonder because it is professional, put together, mature, adult, to maintain a certain air of decorum, to fit and to belong. But this distinction between those who drink milk and those who eat solid food is interesting because I think many of us want to consider ourselves the people who eat solid food, but we would always tell people we're the people who drink milk because we're supposed to be humble. So we would never actually maybe publicly go out saying we eat the solid food, but of course, maybe that's because we actually never did eat the solid food. You see, this tension that I'm, I'm, I'm stepping into and this tension that I, I feel uh, rising within me as I, as I study this passage is this distinction between childish and childlike. Because as a student, I was always told you want to have a childlike faith. But then as a, like a functioning person, I've always been told, don't be childish. Don't allow yourself to be drawn in too much. Don't be too excited. At some point, you have to stop wearing Santa hats. You know, at some point, you have to stop caring so much about X, Y, and Z. And this distinction between childish and childlike has me hung up because uh, I don't know if you know this, but I'm the director of Next Gen Ministries. I spend a lot of time with high schoolers, and uh, there are moments where high schoolers are incredibly childish, and there are moments where they're incredibly childlike, and, uh, and that gives me permission also to be childish at times, like when I went out and uh, purchased some Nerf guns 
because of course in the student ministry you have to have Nerf guns, if not to back the students away to have exciting games. And I didn't bring it into church for five days uh, because I was chasing my dogs around the house with it. And I was having so much fun with the Nerf gun that it didn't make it into the office as soon as it probably could have. So I apologize, that's my honesty here. I'm gonna be clear with you. But there was something about that that I didn't want publicized. Like even in saying that right now, I do feel a sense of anxiety creeping up because I have no idea what you think about me. <laughs> For all I know, some of you are sitting there thinking to yourselves, that is so irresponsible. Those poor dogs. <laughs> and I'm going up here going, it was fantastic. And I would do it again in a heartbeat because that was so much fun. And again, this distinction, childish, childlike. What, what does it mean to be excited about life and at the same time not irresponsible and foolish? Well, there's this, uh, when we talk about basics, we talk about uh, drinking milk. When I think about milk, uh, this picture that's drawn is there's a sort of like level one setting for Christians, maybe followers of Christ, and then there's a sort of, you know, we develop up into these uh, solid food eaters, you know, after constant use, we develop this ability. So uh, in order to demonstrate this for you, I wanted to invite you guys into a little bit of an activity this morning. Uh, this activity uh, haunts some people, but I thought I'd bring it here because I love you guys. You guys are amazing. Uh, so if we can go ahead and take us to the first one. My invitation to, for you is to do these simple math problems. You don't have to scream them out, but just inside your head, I want you to feel good about yourselves right now. If you aren't feeling good about yourself right now, I apologize. You can use a calculator. But this is really, really straightforward. I mean, many of you can look at this and probably do this in your head. Nobody's getting out a piece of paper and pen. Nobody's trying to figure this one out. Uh, because this is what we would like to describe as basic math. In fact, to find this, I typed in basic math. <laughs> because I wanted to take a look at what milk looks like in another way. You see, we have the simple stuff, the stuff that if you get this down, you probably can step into the next areas of math. Like this is step one. You start with addition, then we'll probably get into subtraction at some point, and then there's going to be multiplication and division, and then yada, 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 yada. But we get this part. The problem happens when we stay in school, and we keep attending math, and we get things that look more like this. Besides the grainy nature of the photo, uh, that is horrifying. And if your blood pressure didn't go up, that's probably because you have a very deep sense of, I don't need to be paying attention to what he's talking about right now. This doesn't matter to me in any way whatsoever. I am free from this. And if I haven't lost you yet, this is the moment. Because for some of you, you have a headache. For some of you, your anxiety's up. For some of you, 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 you just, I don't like it. And there's a beautiful moment of this actually demonstrated in uh, the TV show, The Office. If you've watched it, fantastic. I, then you will understand every reference I ever make in my life. They're all from The Office. If you haven't watched it, let me describe it slightly for you. It's a TV show about an office building where uh, this paper company sells paper, and that's the show. That's it. I, I mean, if Seinfeld worked, this can work. And the, main, the manager's name is Michael Scott, and Michael Scott might be the epitome of, is he being childlike or childish? <laughs> And what's happening right now? I don't understand. Um, he's the sort of person who's constantly being uh, corrected by corporate because he's saying things completely inappropriately. He doesn't understand what's going on. And everyone tries to avoid him at all costs. And his 
in this particular episode is sent on a mission to learn about a competing paper company. And so he goes in pretending to be uh, an, uh, a client seeking information on their services, so on and so forth. And uh, Michael Scott, at one point, walks past this, uh, this young girl who's that's a family-run paper company. This young girl's working on her homework, and he walks past and says, oh, what's that? Let me see if I can help you with this. And if I remember correctly, uh, he looks at her math homework, and he says, okay, fantastic. Now, uh, just ignore the parentheses. Okay, there's an X. That means times. Why is that two so little? Don't worry about it. That just means two. So what's double four? And then you know, and she gets this number. She goes, oh, that's eight. He gives her a high five. She writes it down, and he kind of wanders off, and her mother scurries over. And is like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Don't write that. Because what we see in this moment is this man who is, in fact, childish and capable of understanding basic math, trying to apply the rules he understands in this setting into a more complex scenario. And in order to do so, there must be some denying of reality or some redefining and some sort of gymnastics that have to happen in order to make sense of what's going on. Because if you live drinking milk and only doing basic math or only understanding some of the very lowest levels of our faith and, and our religious beliefs, then when presented with a much more complicated, confusing, uh, well-prepared problem, you might just not actually do it correctly. And in fact, you may go into this scenario going, well, that doesn't matter. Well, this isn't important. Well, that's what that means, of course. And in full confidence, get a completely unhelpful, almost sometimes destructive answer that is leaving you feeling like the king of the world. You did it. You're a champion. You solved the problem. When in reality, you actually ignored and avoided the problem in its, in its most complete picture. You see, as Christians, when we have a childish faith, when we have a childish practice of following Christ, we do what I like to do, which is when you get into arguments with maybe your significant other uh, about, you know, maybe unimportant things, you're more concerned with... The, how they're saying something than what they're saying to you. Instead of trying to listen, you're trying to control the way they're speaking. Because I actually have nothing helpful to say in the conflict, but I can sure as tell you how you should be speaking to me. And instead of engaging with a complex problem that probably has nuance and, a different, and two different opinions in this moment, and instead of engaging with this thing that has multiple sides and multiple conversations... I'm hung up on some of these very basic, simple issues that I want to be on the same page about. It's impossible for me to go deeper in this dialogue. It's impossible for me to find connection and intimacy with my wife Erin when we're fighting, when I am so hung up here and I'm ignoring what's happening here. And I will say, I don't always do that, but it is primarily me who is the problem because I hate looking at problems and feeling like I have no idea what to do. I hate looking at not only math problems, but I hate looking at life problems and heart problems and soul problems and not knowing what to do. And so in my anxiety and in my fear, I start to, well, lash out is probably the most simple one. I start to get really short. I start to kind of turn myself away from the situation, and I start to seek to control the scenario as best as I possibly can because fear and scarcity 
is fueling me. But when you eat solid food, when you understand the complexity, when you have a childlike faith, you actually have the capacity to step into these conflicts and these lives, these complex problems, to digest them, to think on them, to respond appropriately, to give it some time. And your response can actually be one that's not only beneficial for you, but for those around you. Because your childlike faith brings with it a sense of curiosity, a sense of wonder, a sense of humility, a sense that says, maybe there is something I don't know. How can I learn to step into this more and more, rather than trying to communicate how much you do know? It's a very, very, very weird tension, childish versus childlike. And I'm not always under, uh, completely sure on how to handle it. But I've been incredibly blessed to be a next-gen director. I've been incredibly, incredibly blessed to be in student ministry and children's ministry. Because here's one of the fun things that I get to see around us is, while I may be scrambling for control out of my own anxiety and fear, what I see in a lot of our youth is this Willingness to just show up and participate and be there and to see what the world has to offer. You see, I can sometimes be stuck in this childish sense of what is the world going to take from me? And there can be this childlike wonder seen in a youth that is, what can the world give to me? What can I find here? What's happening around me? And there's an exploration. There's a wonder. There's a humility there. We went to New York a couple of years ago uh, with our high school students, and we stopped at St. Patrick's Cathedral. And so we had uh, quite a bit of time to sort of explore the city, and a group of us went there. And when we stepped in, we had some students who, uh, what's interesting is you step in and no one says be quiet, but you are quiet. If you've ever stepped into St. Patrick's Cathedral or stepped into any cathedrals, there's something about that space where you just know, okay, whew, and you just sort of stop speaking. And in fact, we had a student who not only stopped speaking, but started weeping. And he didn't understand fully why. <laughs> he had no idea. He, was, he, he in fact, uh, stepped out and asked me to sit on the stairs with him outside of St. Patrick's Cathedral where he, he began to say, I have no idea why I'm crying. I just have this sense of, uh, and that was sort of as much as he could describe. He started asking questions. I started saying, okay, well, what about this? Is this what, what is this stirring up in you? What's going on here? Um, and we eventually were able to get to this place where he was recognizing that when, you step in, when he stepped into that space, what he felt was this incredible sense of not smallness, but humility. That there was something bigger than him. That there was a sense of wonder and awe that was not terrifying, but overwhelming. That there was this sense of what control do I really have? And through our conversation, he was able to find himself in a space where he was okay with a lack of control. 
Because you see, for us grown humans, we don't like a lack of control because a lack of control can mean absolutely anything and our anxieties start to spiral and we start to wonder what could happen next. But for him, there was a, uh, I'll call it a submission to the truth that our God is bigger than our problems and ourselves and our sins and our failures. And he was able to tap into this sense of there must, if there is a God so big, there must be a sense of grace and mercy and love and kindness that is equally as big. And instead of stepping into a space of scarcity of, oh no, oh no, oh no, it was, this is here, this is it. This, and there was a very profound sense of childlike faith happening for this student. And I was very, very blessed to be able to uh, have this interaction with the student because a couple weeks later I found myself in uh, Colorado on a family trip. If you've never been to Colorado, it's absolutely beautiful. And we stayed in Estes Park. And um, one night around 10 p.m., I said, hey, guys, let's drive to the top of the mountain. Let's go. Come on. <laughs> uh, we need, the, the, the light pollution is really low up at this altitude, about 15,000 feet. And um, there are these terrifying roads. I'm scared of heights in general. It was not a great idea, but it ended up being a fun time. Uh, you're driving up this thing, pitch black, through, and you get up to 15,000 feet. There's a giant parking lot, and maybe there's one or two other cars because other fools had the same idea. And I found myself standing next to my car looking straight up and seeing the stars in a way I hadn't seen them before. Because I don't know if you know this, uh, but this is a whole side issue. Light pollution has changed how the sky looks. And, and what's interesting is for some of you maybe looking at this going, well, yeah, that's what they look like. I grew up in the Chicago suburbs where it was an exciting time when I got to see four stars in a night. And to see the stars looking like this, to see the majesty and wonder of an of a infinite universe made by an infinite God who has infinite grace and infinite love and kindness, made in me this sense that it's not about me. I get to be a part of it. You see, my childishness and my anxiety and fear fueled this uh, frustration and this cynicism and this sense of... Um, now, nah, nothing's ever going to live up to my expectations. But the problem is I expected these things in the world to say something about me rather than being ready for what they had to say about God. And that childishness stole from me, and I allowed it to steal from me in many ways, many moments of wonder and excitement. Whereas then at 15,000 feet in Colorado, there was this invitation this invitation into a space where I didn't have control, I didn't have power and authority, and this had nothing to say about who I am, but it has everything to say about who God is. And I don't get to decide that. I don't get to decide who God is. I don't have any control in this moment. But I know that there's love, and I know that there's grace, and I know that there's kindness, and I know that there's always this constant invitation into relationship And this alone uh, has challenged me as I work with these youth inquirers, I work with these uh, children, I, I see this sense of generous love versus scarce hoarding, their willingness to give away rather than to hold on to. There's a recognition that God has an infinite amount of gifts to hand them and to give away, and that they're just going to keep receiving his love and that they have an infinite supply of love to give from. 
You see, the movie Elf is about how adults sometimes need to look down to learn how to grow up. It's the idea that sometimes adults have to not know exactly what's going on. And sometimes we need to look to our youth and our children to better understand how to engage with the God of the universe. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this Sunday morning. Lord, we thank you for our community. We thank you for your love. God, we love you, and we know that you are hospitable. We know that you are generous. We know that we can slip into a childishness, and we know that you invite us into a childlikeness. God, we know that you have called the children to you, and God, we ask that you would give us opportunities to demonstrate a generative, never-ending outpouring of love not only to the people around us, but to receive that from you yourself. Father, we love you, we thank you, and praise you. In your son's great and holy name, amen.